and Eschutes, chapter 19. Two days later, I found a spot in one of the countless alpine meadows not far from a hiking trail. It had a privileged view of the rocky peaks of the Bavarian Alps. I stabbed and hacked and sawed at the brown grass with the serrated edge of my entrenching tool. Little by little, what seemed like spoonfuls of root-filled rocky dirt were ripped from the ground. When I'd made an untidy cavity deep enough to sink a leg up to my knee in, I went back down the trail to where Gertie sat in the Citroen. I slowly opened the passenger door. You ready, Gertie? A black satin bundle lay across her thighs. Come sit with me, she said quietly. I closed her door, then went around and sat next to her in the driver's seat. We stared through the windshield, watching flat-bottom clouds slide along some invisible plane in the wind. They were wrapping their arms around the sharp dolomite peaks in the distance. I don't mean to keep you, Ollie, she said. I shrugged politely. We don't have to do this today. She took a deep breath and shook her head. I think it's time for her to finally go. She stroked the satin bundle on her lap with the side of her thumb. I don't know why it's so hard. Her voice broke a little. It's as if this is who she is. I nodded, knowing the feeling. What was in that bag was the last toehold I would ever know of that other world and the girl who I still couldn't forget. I am very thankful that you were able to tell me a little more about her and that we were able to take her from that terrible place. I never told you. The words came out slowly. I was about to kill myself when she came back for me. Gertie looked up from the bundle in surprise. If I hadn't met her, if she hadn't come to me, I probably would have gone through with it. Gertie reached out and held my hand and wept for a while as the sky turned more and more pink. Finally, she put a knuckle against her runny nose and sniffed. I think I'm ready now. I opened her door for her and carried the tiny bundle, letting Gertie hold the crook of my elbow as we walked up the mountain. When we were still together, I woke up one night, and she was watching the sound of music in my room. She told me that she hated musicals, but that she loved mountains, that her family used to go for picnics, and her dad would show them how to milk a cow, and then spray them with the milk from the udders as they leaned in to watch. Go ahead, she said softly. She kissed her fingertips, then touched them to the bundle. I stared at her tear-streaked face for a while to make sure she was really ready. Then she cocked her chin at the meadow and gave a sad smile. I tried to smile, but think it probably looked like a grimace as I turned and walked with Anna's bones across the low grass. A cold wind blew over the ground and across the small of my back. I wished I could just be carried away in it forever holding Anna. I marched to the hole and knelt down carefully placing her into it. I stared at the inner lump as my fingertips trembled in the fresh dirt by the grave. Anna? I listened to the wind shoot past my ears. I am so sorry about what happened to you. I wish I could change it. I, I tried to. I stopped and inhaled a sharp breath of air, then forced it through my nose. I'm so glad that I was able to be with you for a little. I swiped at the tears with the sleeve of my hoodie. Your daughter is the coolest lady I ever met, and your granddaughter is a fox. I grinned at my inappropriate joke and blinked at the tears. I'm sorry about what happened to you and that you didn't get a move on, so I hope. I looked over my shoulder at the mountains. I hope that you'll like it here, where you can see the snow on the mountains. I looked back into the grave and stared at the bundle, which, unlike the grass above it, lay still and unmoving in the wind. I would have given anything to see it stir and move and have Anna come out of the ground and wrap her arms around me, hold her, and kiss her no matter how cold, but instead there was just silence and the sound of wind. Eventually, I slowly began to scrape the earth back over her bundle, not taking my eyes off of it until it was completely covered. Then I walked up the hill with my aid tool slapping limply against my thigh. 
Gertie had been watching from a rock in the tree line and got up to wrap her arms around me. Now it was her turn to hold me and steady me as we made our way back home. I was sure that Anna's father or some other harbinger would come for me that night, but they never did. The darkened room was as boring and unimaginative as a military barracks should be, spartan and void. Nothing stirred, no eyes peered at me from the dark, and I was finally able to close my eyes and fall into nothing. I didn't see the ghosts anymore. Instead, what I saw the next day were a lot of half-dead, depressed people just like me, and knowing full well what depressed people were capable of, I became the unofficial savior of my platoon. Soccer, Xbox, guitar lessons, trips to castles, volunteering to escort troops to AA and NA meetings, whatever it took to keep everyone going. Eventually, I led the charge with more enthusiasm and fervor than anything I ever cared about since Anna. I spent a lot of time letting Albert's relentless optimism wash over me as we hung out. I even got the courage to ask out that female MP who I'd met the first night I saw Anna. We went to what was rumored to be the most authentic Italian food downtown. You know that girl you saw running on the airstrip around Halloween? She asked over a steaming plate of carbonara. Uh-huh, I said, feeling the mouthful of vodka rigatoni I was devouring turn to something gooey and sticky in my mouth. My NCO says usually all fall and winter they see her or get reports of her running through the trees. It's become a Halloween tradition for the MPs here, she said. They say I've missed out because she hasn't been around anymore. I swallowed and sank with relief. I never re-enlisted, so when my time came, I gave Gertie a goodbye hug, and she gave me a framed copy of the photo with Anna in it. When I work late, occasionally I steal glances at the sun turning pink on the snowy ridges of the Flatiron Mountains. I work as a counselor now in Colorado. Sometimes, on cold fall nights when the leaves have mostly all dropped off, I think about Anna back there on that alpine meadow, watching the sun turn pink when it rises and sets. Once in a while, a client notices the framed black and white photo of her I keep in my office next to the pictures of my wife and daughter. A relative? They ask sometimes. I smile and nod in placation, and then listen as they tell me about the disquieting thoughts they can't quit reliving, about the glares in the dark corners, about maddening, unclean entities that halt their sleep and keep coming back for obsessive nocturnal caresses over and over again. They say I'm very, very good at what I do. So that concludes the last chapter of Anna Shoots. All the links are below if you want to give me any feedback, any constructive criticism. I wanted to thank my friend Stephen Curley for sharing the story with a lot of people and trying to get a lot of people interested in it, as well as anybody else who's shared the story, liked the story, whatever. I appreciate you guys. Right now I'm going to take a little break from audiobooks because my novel The Burka Cave is being considered for publication by a traditional publisher. So that will be taking a good chunk of my time. By the summer, I'll know a little bit more if I want to try to audio publish or traditionally publish some of the manuscripts I have laying around. However, if you really did enjoy this and want more audiobooks, it would help me to know. So that way I have a feel of what to do with these manuscripts. Again, I wanted to thank everyone and I hope you enjoyed the story.